Almighty. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 11. No, sorry, episode number 12 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I am your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Greetings and salutations. We hope everyone is doing well after uh, one full week, roughly a week of uh, election and, dare I say, post-election fatigue and craziness. (laughs) Hard Um, to believe it's only been a week. I know. (sighs) Yeah, it's a little crazy. And when I was writing up my notes for this, you always put a title of whatever we're going to talk about at the top. And I have post-election question mark because we... (laughs) I, I mentioned last week that we were going to, well, once we find out who wins, we'll call, well, the podcast called, be called post-election and well, I think we have a pretty clear idea of who's going to win or who should win or has already been declared the winner. There's still some up in the air stuff going on. So I get, we won't know. It's not officially official yet. Yeah. It's, it's very, very interesting. Um, and so that, that is kind of, that throws a nice, uh, a good amount of like stress on the situation <laughs> um, when you have the current president not uh, not conceding. Though I don't, to be fair, I don't, I don't, um, I don't blame him for not conceding. Yeah, I mean that's his personality, and and he he absolutely does have every right to um, challenge the count if there is yeah. suspicion of any fuckery. So. And and I encourage the Democrats to let him do that to his heart's content. Spend all the money you want on lawyers. Mm-hmm. Let's get this right. Let there yeah. be no question as to the answer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. I do, however, think that um, you're taking too rational of approach to this. How so? Um, so, uh, Mr. Mr. Joe Biden, he had... In a, in a talk. Or President a, elect. President elect Joe <laughs> Biden. Um, he had said that he finds it embarrassing that Trump won't concede the election. And he went on to say a couple of other things. Um, that's, that's, I mean, that, that, that's like saying his face is orange. Yeah. Of course, he's a fucking embarrassing person. That's not new. To me, I mean, it. I would not advise most people to take the path that he is as far as challenging stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is Trump we're talking about. So, like, his character or demeanor, duh, we already know what we're getting in for. So, to me, the point is, if he wants to challenge it, let him challenge it so it's nice and clear. That's all. Well, that's, yeah, and like I said, that's what I agree with. Uh, uh, My my pushback is specifically with what Biden said and how that differs from allowing Trump to do the thing he wants to do. Sure, yeah. And what it reminds me of is it's when when someone has... uh, like an argument about something, whether it's crazy or not, the best thing to do is to argue it with them and to hear their point and to let them talk and then shut it down, not call them names. Right. Or right. counter argue it. I that's mean, what I mean. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. Shut them down, counter argue it, do your thing. Like that, that's actually how things should be, um, should be done. I mean, that's the classy, thing to do that's like the, the normal the rational the adult move the adult move and i found it a v- very uh, trumpian <laughs> of, of president-elect joe biden to claim that it's embarrassing that he won't he, he won't step down simply because or, or concede simply because that's not that's actually not true it isn't an embarrassing move for someone in a race to see who wins to challenge the race to see if he can still win because that's legal to do so. It's embarrassing sure. because 
of all the things we've ever talked about about Trump and how he's an embarrassing person. But the fact that he's an embarrassing individual doesn't mean that his actions, his legal actions to, to try and win a race are also embarrassing. It, it, it just kind of struck me as something that was very uh, childish of Joe Biden to do. It seemed like he sort of lowered himself to that level of denigration versus rational argument and idea idea debating you know and I, I just how high did you think he was <laughs> well so that's that's kind of okay, part I mean, of it i mean that's definitely a, a part of it but i i still feel like if you're trying to b- between the two of them he's the one who seems to sort of aim the aim for the higher more the moral high ground sure and then for whatever reason he just decides here to be like yeah this is embarrassing. Like as if Joe Biden would concede if he was losing and he thought that there might be evidence of voter fraud, whether that's realistic or not is irrelevant. I think he might. I, I in, in all honesty, I think that um, Trump is just not going down without a fight. Sure. I think it's absolutely clear that he's not going to get a second term, uh, but the count's not official yet. And if you look at the numbers of the places, I think they have like 10 lawsuits going on and they are doing things like challenging the validity of 700 votes in a state where Biden had like a 10,000 vote lead. Yeah. So even even if they win these things, uh, it's not going to change the election. Additionally, uh, judges are throwing these out left and right. I think they've all been I think they're 0 for 12. Yeah, that's what I heard. I, I haven't verified that. So whoever's listening uh, maybe you can verify it for us, but it's. Uh, I heard that they were zero for twelve. Yeah, so it, it's. I think that's more the that that detail is important in terms of how Trump is presenting himself, and you know, just just putting up a useless fight. But that's his character. Yeah. You know, he he never admits uh, anything. No, so, very very true. I will say this though, um, to counter the, all the failures that seem to have been occurring as of today. Uh, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, had a, has announced that the state will conduct a full hand recount of the election mm. in their state. Okay. Um, basically as a result of Trump claiming voter fraud. Um, but yeah, like uh, you were saying, let him do his thing. Trump, let him do his thing. And it's like, this is why you allow someone to articulate their argument. He's making an argument. He's like, this is my hypothesis. It's For him, it's real, but it's my hypothesis is that there's voter fraud. And then his lawyers are 0 for 12. And it's like, <laughs> Biden doesn't need to come in and say, oh, that's so embarrassing. He just says, well, I told you so. Or maybe our system's not as corrupt as you think. Or too bad. You know, it's interesting. I think that of all the things going, uh, you know, being said right now, going on right now, um, that what would most likely be considered a very small comment by uh, by Biden, like that's what kind of stuck in your craw. Yeah. I think of so many other things on both <laughs> sides and it, it's it's caught your attention that he said, oh, it's embarrassing. <laughs> that's interesting. Well, I don't like, I don't like when arguments are had that way. Like his his rebuttal is, wrong not simply because he's spouting like he's saying something that's like factually incorrect or something it's wrong because he's engaging in the wrong part of the argument 
And this is supposed to be the, the, the apparent new leader of our free world. And, or, and it, this, to be honest, this could be anyone else that we're talking about. It isn't the fact that it's Joe Biden. I just latched onto it because I thought that this individual said something that was quite dumb. It's like there are, there are other ways to handle Trump's attempts to keep the, keep the presidency. Calling him embarrassing for exercising legal rights is not one of them. Now, if Trump was doing things that were um, illegal or were unconventional or frowned upon, yeah, then you can call it embarrassing. Like, that's totally fine. Like, his performance to some people uh, in the uh, debates was embarrassing. I thought it was par for the course because what I expected, but that might be a better use of that term. But him just, his tweets are embarrassing. Right. He's just an embarrassing individual. Yeah, but his his right to challenge the election where he legally can do so isn't isn't embarrassing, I don't think, regardless of who it is, because that's part of our legal framework. Sure. And I think within the context. So I, I totally agree with your point that, yeah, just just let him uh, let him do what he legally can to to secure yeah. the victory. But if we add the context of over 12 and the things that they're trying to argue, uh, strategically, as a politician, that's fucking embarrassing yeah, yeah. To, to go after it that way. So I'll give Biden the benefit of the doubt on that one. It's, at least, at, least, it's at least silly, to say the least, and um, to do that sort of thing. But yeah, it's just, there's been a couple of things like that that um, President-elect Joe Biden has said that his, his word choice has just been curious to me. Yeah. Um, or his, his speechwriter's word choice. Yeah, like exactly. It's like it, it's a very they're very curious uh, uses of different words. Like he he could have easily just called this silly, and it would have gotten across the same exact point for pretty much everybody. And I wouldn't be in a in a, in a you know in a upset at the moment because silly would be accurate. I'll push back and I'll say maybe maybe not in the sense that the the choice of words. And of course, obviously, you can speak to how you would receive that, and I can speak to how I would receive it. But um, any one individual doesn't mean shit in politics. It's groups of people and how statistically they respond to things. Yeah. So to call him embarrassing probably resonates more okay, that with true, the general yeah. Democratic Party right now. And we, I know we've established this before, but I, how I feel about these kinds of things tends to be different than how the, the average yeah. person feels about sure, them. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I'm, dude, you want to you talk embarrassing? How about the Giuliani press conference? I didn't hear it. Tell me more about it. You didn't hear it? No. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Trump tweets out that there's going to be a press conference at the Four Seasons. I think this was 11 a.m. a couple, three days ago. Okay. Okay. Press conference to be expected. Giuliani's going to do his thing. Half an hour later, Trump tweets out again that the uh, press conference will be held at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. In Philadelphia. Huh? And, and dude, you got to look this up. The visual is critical here. But the Four Seasons Landscaping Company is on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Nowhere near the actual downtown area or any body, really. It is nestled comfortably between a, uh, a porn shop and a crematorium. <laughs> yeah. Gets better. Oh, my God. So they set up the podium in the alley. So Giuliani is in the alley with a big, uh, what they call a step and repeat. So all the little, like, Trump logos behind him as a background. Yeah, yeah. 
it's like taped up to the wall, surrounded by, by his cronies, and going off and just talking about ridiculous stuff. I mean, like it's pretty high level Giuliani type stuff. Yeah. Um, at the Four Seasons landscaping. <laughs> and he makes all these ridiculous claims and then just scuttles off and takes zero questions. Dude, it's, it's fucking incredible. It is, you got to see it. You know make what, it a point to look that one up, dude. It's, it's Do you know priceless. what some of the uh, crazy things were that he said? Um, I forget because exactly how he stated it really uh, speaks to the, the, how weird the whole fucking thing was. Like, I would want to say it exactly right because his words, each and individual one was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, but mainly it was, it was accusations of like dead people voting. Okay. And he mentioned that, um, yeah, it's con- that's, I've heard that that's a thing that yeah. can occur. And again, that's like, you know, handful of votes versus a hundred thousand lead or whatever. So yeah. th- that's a silly thing to chase down. He was saying like Will Smith's dad voted in the last Philadelphia election, even though he's been dead for however long or just really weird stuff like that. And they say, you know, what do you, what do you think we're stupid or something? So of course, every late night host that day was like, uh, yeah, yeah, we do. Um, it, it, it was one of the most interesting and one of the most 2020 things I've seen all year. Yeah. We'll look back on this in several years and say, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. I, uh, so I actually wonder two things. Um, I had heard that Giuliani was in a, uh, was found in a compromising position in the new Borat movie. Yep. Um, apparently he like signed the waiver form or whatever you signed to be in a movie, but he was caught like with his hand in his pants with like a, yeah, like so the deal with a that young is reporter or something. <clears throat> I haven't seen the movie, so I, this is just kind of secondhand. Yeah, um, if you like the first one, you probably like the second one. I did watch it, and it's it's absolutely overblown. Yeah, by the the Democrats, which you know is to be expected. But I think the whole interaction was very much a dirty old man kind of thing. Nothing yeah. specifically wrong, nothing illegal, but fucking greasy. Yeah. And and the deal was like the whole hand down the pants thing is after the interview, um, they went into this side bedroom or whatever in this hotel and the, I forget her name, but the, um, co-star in the, in Borat is this, uh, young, I believe Romanian actress. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like 24 or something. And, uh, so she, she's super flirty with him. Okay. Like as a, uh, you know, uh, an ambitious young reporter yeah. wanting to do good in her job. And she's kind of like touching him and like touching his knee and, oh, you're so funny and like really sucking up to him. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's playing that role and he's eating it up. Okay. Yeah. And, and it was a couple small things like when they're we're in the bedroom or whatever, he's sitting on the bed and she's kind of standing next to him and the way he like kind of reaches out and touches her hip. Mm-hmm. Which it was a very light touch, not that big a deal, but still, like, yeah. bro, you're an old guy. Don't. Uh, it also, just looks like a married old man, right? So, and then, so while they're over there, he's taking off his microphone and stuff because the uh, interview is over. And uh, if you have like a wireless lavalier microphone, like a, a clip-on, it's usually like run down the back of your shirt and stuff. So you, you know, you untuck your shirt to get it all out, and he was tucking it back in, 
And because he was sitting on the bed in order to do it, like you lay back mm-hmm. to tuck something in, then you would sit back up. Okay. Like, so that's the shot of him laying back with his hand stuffed down his pants. And he's really just tucking his shirt in. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. So that particular thing, not nothing specifically wrong with that other than everything and just kind of being a dirty old man. Yeah. Um, what was hilarious was then uh, Sasha Baron Cohen comes running in as Borat. <laughs> Saying, uh, no, 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 she's too old for you. <laughs> Basically says, come fuck me. I got a tight asshole. Oh um, at which point, you know, Giuliani is like, what is going on here? He gets up and gets the hell out of there. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was it was a funny moment. So that's but, hilarious. Yeah. See, I haven't heard that last part. What I had heard roughly was that um, he was talking to this, an actress who was a young, playing a young reporter, but mm-hmm. he didn't know it. And he was like leaning back against his bed in the the wall in this hotel room, like Al Bundy, like with his hand in his pants, like lecherously looking at her. No, wasn't that? And he, you know, and I, I could, you know, he's a fat old man. I could see that. He just <laughs> placed his hand in his pants, just kind of lay there, and you know, it, uh, it's disgusting, but it's not unheard of. Right. And um, okay, so that's interesting. It's yeah. interesting how much context. Um, can play a factor in these sorts of things. Yep. Because those are two nuance, com- people. Those are two completely different issues. Mm-hmm. Right. And just to think too that whomever like snapped a photo and was like creepy Rudy Giuliani with his hand in his pants like a pervert versus oh he's just tucking his damn shirt in. I think Sasha Baron Cohen might have been the one to release that. <laughs> and of course, I mean they got cameras all over the place because they're you know they're doing this interview yeah. and, and other cameras. Um, so it wasn't tough to get the shot. But no, no, I think of he's not. the one that that sent that out and, there. And yeah, it's I don't I get it. It's funny, but it's also one of those things where like I, I see that sort of stuff and I wonder like I can understand if like the Twitter mob is like freaking out because it's Twitter. Sure. But what I don't understand is when you have like supposedly intelligent, high level, say political individuals or whomever, you know, um, late night talk show hosts or reporters on TV, who, whoever might've also ate this up and they're like, Oh yeah, this is real. It's like, all you have to do is watch the damn movie to understand that this is a little bit overblown. Like it's, and then yeah. you just call it, you say it's funny and it's inappropriate and it makes Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani look like a pervert. And then you're like, but it's clearly a joke. And then you just move on. And that, yeah, it's interesting how that, um, that doesn't get you as many clicks online though. That's the problem, right? Is exactly is that, uh, and so we're we're heading towards you know, we're already in an era where like that's this is why there's we it's considered the death of journalism now is because yep. clicks are what rule, and so there's no reason to tell the truth, and if your medium makes the truth for people because that's what journalism does, it's specifically designed to root out the truth and then present it to the public and you lie, then either lies become truth or no one believes you. Which I think is both of those things are happening right yeah. now, interestingly. But um, Everybody reread 1984 unless we forget. Jesus, fuck. <laughs> that book gives me nightmares. Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly I, uh, relevant right now. I read it two and a half years ago in Hawaii. I was on vacation, me and my girlfriend, and I've been wanting to read that since I was like 12. Just never did. 
and uh, read it while I was there. It took over a couple of days, and I literally had nightmare nightmares on a vacation in Hawaii <laughs> because at every page I was like, "Oh, that's happening right now. That's happening right now. That's happening right now." How oh, many the, fingers, Winston? Yeah, it's like both the left and the right are doing that. Yeah, the how many fingers thing, and then it's like, what six months ago there was this whole there was this whole issue on Twitter. You know, granted, it was started by James Lindsay so he could troll people, but it became a thing where two plus two equals five. Yep. And not only was that picked up by the secretary of the um, um, of Washington State's like Department of Education, she's a math teacher in uh, in Seattle somewhere. She teaches uh, uh, racial math, um, <laughs> indig- indigenous math. She teaches a certain type of math that basically looks at math through a racial lens. Um, she not only promoted the promoted it to try. She basically was like, you know, how many of my mathematic mathematician friends or educators can prove that this is correct? That two plus two equals. Yeah, five. she was like asking somebody, please find a way to make this correct. Yeah, it's like, and what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, exactly. And then um, uh, some pro, some like big ass program also tweeted about it and talked about how it was it was true. I forget which program it was. Like, it was like. I didn't realize we were going to talk about this, so I didn't, I didn't look this up, but uh, it was like the Department of Health or some shit. It was the kind of a department where you'd hear and you're like, not only do you know who it is, but you're like, they did what? <laughs> they're like a- they're like actively trying to show that math isn't real. Yep. And um, Well, dude, the, specifically here in Washington State, the educational legislation mm-hmm. and policy that's going on with regards to the critical race theory and all that is yeah. fucking frightening. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I did a little bit of research. We talked about this, I know, uh, two months ago or so, but uh, I haven't really looked much more into it. Um, it's one of those things I want to do a deep dive into to really understand and sort of separate the, um, you know, the wheat from the chaff, as it were, right? I want to find out what, what part, what are, what are they doing that is good and bad? Because I assume that it's a small amount of good with a large amount of bad that tends to be the, what happens with critical race theory, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I also don't want to assume that that's true because it could just be some, a bunch more good stuff than bad. So, you know, like you, you just never know. Yeah. Um, but I don't have high hopes, but <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. The, the, the signs are not encouraging at this point. <laughs> no. Um, I'm going to uh, roll it back just a second though. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about, about the Giuliani thing, um, because you'd mentioned that the late night host said at a field day about it. Oh, yeah. I'm actually curious. I'm curious of two things. I'm curious what late night talk show hosts are going to do once Trump's gone. And I'm curious if any of them are going to lose their jobs because they have nothing to talk about. Oh, no. There, there's always stuff to talk about. And I've seen a couple um, much more lighthearted digs at Kamala and Joe. Sure. Um, but very much on par with... Um, late night talk shows as we knew them four years ago. I mean, they're always going to go after whoever's in office. That's their job to make the jokes. And they're going to do that with Harris and Biden. Um, but the, the energy is different. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. That's the one thing I remember with Stephen Colbert. Um, when right around when Trump got elected is that he, he'd mentioned paraphrasing, of course, it's been a long time, but he basically mentioned, he's like, Trump being in office will give me a job for four years. That's something to that effect. He's yeah. like, just his presence alone will keep me employed for the next four years. 
I don't need, he's like, I don't, you know, I think he actually says something along the lines of, I don't need to do anything else, but talk about the president. And I don't listen to most of the, I actually, I haven't actually really, I've listened to clips of stuff because my, uh, like people I know, like, um, the late night shows, uh, shows, um, like Steve Colbert and then, uh, what's, uh, Trevor Noah at the, mm-hmm. the South yeah. African kid daily show, uh, daily show. That's right. He took over for Jon Stewart, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, I've listened to some clips of their stuff, but I don't find them funny and I haven't listened to either of them or any of the other people since before Trump was elected. They were actually funny to me beforehand. I remember specifically, um, I would listen to uh, Steve Colbert a good amount. Year, you know, six year, five, six years, seven years ago. He was funny. He had a, um, a presidential bid for a little bit of time, like eight years ago yep, or something. Yep. And that was hilarious. Like they actually, they, they were good. And then I just remember the last couple of years, every time I would hear clips, they were just, they felt lazy to me. Lazy? How so? And that's, I can't, I don't have like an example of like when they were like how it just, maybe what it is, is that they've actually spent four years pretty much just exclusively making fun of the crazy stuff that Trump has done. Yeah. And that's lazy. It's like, I'm over it. Like I was over it three months in. You're per- over it, but most people, most of the other people, people are. Yeah. And they love it. I, I still get why they're doing it. But part of it is like, I don't, every time I hear this stuff, it's like, okay, I've heard this joke. Like it, it means nothing to me. <laughs> you know, ironically, something I found because um, I do like those type of shows, the late night ones, and uh, I found it interesting that if I'll bounce between, say, Daily Show, Trevor Noah, uh, Late Show, Stephen Colbert, um, uh, who's the guy? <sighs> Kimmel's okay. Um, oh, Seth Myers. I like Seth as well. Anyway. Um, He's the weekend up, update guy, yeah, right? From yeah, yeah. SNL. Yeah. And it's one thing I found is is before Trump, usually you're gonna get a different version of the same jokes. Yeah, yeah. If there's something specific going on in the news, everybody's gonna take a swing at it, and that's that. But Trump has done so much crazy shit mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. That the late night shows actually have different jokes for different crazy shit he did. Um. It was, it was like an oversaturation of usable material. So they would just kind of pick and choose <laughs> what they want to go with yeah. on the show. Um, and that was, that was like, I noticed that a year and a half or two years ago, like, oh, wow. Usually they're kind of saying the same stuff, but everybody has got their own material to work with now. And then like a year ago, uh, it, it, it occurred to me, or not occurred, but it, it got to the point where it was getting a little distastefully venomous. It's one yes. thing to poke a little fun. And that's kind of part of it too, is yeah. I, I felt that with the clips I'd see, like they were, it was, it seemed to me to be like, I'm all for inappropriate comedy. And quite frankly, if they want to be venomous, more power to them. Like they should have the legal right to do so. Sure. But it was one of those things where I was like, okay, like first you just, it seemed to me as if all the jokes I heard were the same. They were just picking on the same person repeatedly for all this crazy shit. And then they just started to get mean about it. And it's like, don't you have, uh, there's other things that occur in, in, in the U S and the world that you could easily poke fun of. Again, audience response, man. Yeah, and so I, <laughs> You'd be there going, yeah. And everybody else is like, well, what Trump do? <laughs> see, like, again, I go back so to that. Like, I'm just an odd, I'm just an odd cat, I guess, when it comes to this kind of stuff. But, uh, that's a good thing though. Yeah. I, I yeah, I just, I, I never, I, I really stopped liking it. And I, um, 
I just don't find them as funny anymore. Mm. It just seems too rote. Yeah. Like it's, they're just kind of, kind of going through the motions, which is interesting that you found as someone who's watched it, that they have different jokes now. Yeah. Um, that's uh, something maybe worth exploring between the two of us. Cause <laughs> I'm actually curious as to how both of those things could be true. Yeah. Um, I also listen to so little of it that you're probably more correct than I am in this situation. I, excuse me. I don't really, uh, I don't really pay much attention at all. I'll probably hear a clip once a month. My girlfriend will find it funny. And she's like, watch this with me. Yeah. Okay. For me, I mean, prior, I'll say prior to this year, because I've gotten a bit more politically aware this year, but prior to that, it was really the only palatable way to get the news. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of Americans get their news. Like back in the day, it was Jon Stewart. Yeah. Um, and everybody's like, oh, we're not the news, we're not the news. No, but you're talking about stuff that happened in a way that I'm willing to listen to. Yeah. Because the, the Fox News and the MSNBCs of the world are just, uh, just tough to listen to. You know, um, for slightly different reasons, but it's just journalism has been dead in that sense for a long time. But if we're going to if we're not going to take it serious, like pure journalism, well, let's just tell some jokes and I'll hear what's going on. I really I I do my best to separate the facts of a thing that happened from the joke. Yeah. Um, It's like, okay, this is a thing that happened. And I think about that separately versus whatever joke they're making as if the joke itself were the news, which, which can be tough to do. Sure. You yeah. know, if you just, especially if it's late at night and you're just relaxing, you're ready to go to bed and mm-hmm. just taking in some information. But just to try to be, you know, uh, cognizantly aware of that as a way to uh, get some entertainment, but also get some information and know the difference between the two. Yeah, no, very, very true. So, and, um, you were talking about, uh, and I, I brought it up as well about journalism being dead. Um, it seems to me that there are there are a few journalists left, and they're almost all exclusively independent now. Oh yeah, which is crazy to me. And you so, have to be. Uh, um, Barry Weiss recently left New York Times, mm-hmm. and was of course pilloried by the New York Times for it. But she's independent; and she does good work. Um, oh, what's it? Uh, is it Alan Greenwald? No. He's the guy. Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald. Yeah, he's um, the guy who broke the... Uh, Snowden. Snowden. Yeah. And then he recently broke the um, some emails between Joe Biden's son and someone like a few weeks ago. And then as a result, his company that he founded got angry with him. And so he stepped down. Oh, I didn't know that, um, that part. This was like three weeks ago or something. Okay. Um, and then uh, Chris Rufo is a Seattleite. Hmm, he's an, he's an independent guy. And um, he's the one who... He pretty much single-handedly is the one who's responsible for bringing to attention, bringing to Trump's attention the issues with critical race theory and getting the executive order signed. Really? Yes. Okay. So he's um, he's been working for probably a good two years now with uh, with actual people in actual organizations or in government, um, getting the documents that the slides and stuff they're they're being told to learn and mm. have. You know, he's been sent email exchanges from people asking questions about it or telling people what they can and can't do and how to say stuff. Um, it, it's been pretty intense. What's his name again? Chris, Christopher Rufo, R-U-F-O. Rufo, okay. I'll have to check um, that out. I got to give a shout out to Matt Taibbi as well. I was going to say he was the next Rolling one. Stone, but he's, well, he's got he's, independent voice. Yeah, he's independent now. I think oh, he's, he is. He's not with the Rolling Stone anymore? I think he writes for them. He might still, but I, I, I think it's more of like an at-large. Okay. 
Um, all these people have their own website, so it's hard to tell if like they're employed by the people or not right. because they have their own websites and stuff, and they do their own, you know, articles and and things of that nature. Um, but yeah, it's uh, and then the other one is Andy. Um, Andy No, yeah, from Portland. Yeah, um, who's of of them all is the most ter- I, I I feel the most scared for him. He um. He basically, so for those unaware of Andy No, he's a, like an independent reporter journalist down in uh, Portland. And for pretty much the last like six months, from what I understand, he has, he has gone, um, gone out every night during the peaceful protests that have burnt down most of, mostly peaceful protests. Yeah. That have burnt down a large portion of Portland and in the surrounding areas and followed them around and recorded it. And then posted it on Twitter. And there's actually um, a picture online somewhere, probably a couple, but um, Douglas Murray from the the British fella that a lot of people don't like, he was in the States to do some interviews and stuff, and he went up to meet Andy No. And there's a picture of them, too, um, on either side of a graffiti against, like, a brick wall or something that says, Murder Andy No. Wow. Yeah, and um, Andy No said that um, he's received... Probably, I think I think it's like either half or a dozen um, death threats, and he's reported them all to the police, the Portland police, and they've done nothing. And um, there was like someone, re- a reporter, reached out to the Portland police and was like, "Is this true?" And they're like, "You know, we do have a record of him filing multiple, you know, reports, but it's hard for us to do anything when it's anonymous." And then the reporter basically asked, was like, have you reached out to Andy No yet to get his side of the story? And then they had no comment. And so what I, the general consensus, and this is, you know, this could be conspiratorial. I think it's probably correct though. Pretty, pretty easily correct is that Andy No is shining the light on all of the, a lot of the terribleness that's going on Mm -hmm. and we can get more into the, like what is going on and like how it's coming about. Cause it's all goes back to critical race theory at some point, but and people are understandably upset about that because they only want to show the good things. But the city's corrupted in as much as they're not following up to help him. My assumption is because they know who he is. Could be, yeah. You know, and it's like, who's going to help him? Like, if, they, if they're not on board, like, the police are asked to stand back. Um, the police commissioner is also the mayor who is basically allowed a lot of this to go on from what I understand. I could be wrong on that, but my, my impression is that he has um, essentially rejected any federal help and then has allowed protesters to go about doing things up until the point that they, the protesters surrounded the condo he lived and then lit it on fire. Yeah, and then he got a, his place. Yeah. Then he got a little bit angry. Yeah. But um, yeah. And so he's, he's definitely one I want to shout out to because of the, of the rest of them, He's the only one I've heard of thus far that um, seems to be in the most amount of danger at all times. Yeah, he's square in the middle of it. Dude, he's Jeez. literally in the middle of it, and he's not backing down. He's got he's like a wife and two kids. Yeah, he's like uh, when I first um, was when I actually first heard about him, it was at the beginning of the grievance studies of affair with um, uh, James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, and Peter Bogosian. Mm-hmm. Um, they had held a, I don't remember if it was before or after that they were found out about, but the three of them had held this, uh, talk. Um, 
at Portland State University, which is in Portland. And Andy No, I believe, had helped put it together. And interestingly, this is kind of an aside, but in the top background, writing a piece on it was a very young Tim Poole who didn't have any followers at the time. Oh. And now he's quite, he's getting bigger. Yeah. Um, but he was there. I remember, I remember I said, found out about him later. And then I had watched that video and he's in the background, like with this beanie on, you know, writing it up in the top left-hand corner of the, cause it's a, a like a, like it's a lecture a, hall kind of lecture hall that's yeah. like raised, yeah. you know, like a, like a theater, yeah. basically uh, like a movie theater where it's raised up high and he's in the far back. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he's been around this stuff for a long time. And I, I remember seeing some, uh, Twitter, like a Twitter feed is what it's called where you have like multiple people responding on Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't thread know. actually Twitter, Twitter thread. thread for that. But yeah. Okay. Twitter thread. Um, where uh, it basically was just a bunch of whomevers, you know, activists who were like talking about how to find Andy No and eliminate him, get murder him. Wow! And Andy No had like found it all, probably because someone told him about it, and then he went to their Twitter, found all the exchange, the, the thread, got it, and then posted it on his Twitter and was like, "This is what people want to do, you know, like bring it on, bitches," <laughs> and. um yeah, no, he, he he's uh, he's had some. I've watched quite a few of his uh, like um, iPhone videos mm -hmm. that he's put up on YouTube, and he'll like explain what's going on, and he just kind of follows everyone around, and um, it's fucking crazy. Well, I'll have to look him up then, because I've only heard kind of about him in passing or other people talking about him, but I haven't seen a whole lot of his work. Yeah, no, he's he's really good. I really like him. Um, and then Chris Rufo's the other one that. Uh, that I really enjoy just because of the work that he's doing to kind of highlight some of the problems with, uh, with, um, with critical race theory or really just like diversity style trainings and things. There, mm -hmm. there's some, there's some good things, but there's also some other things that, uh, are very, very problematic. And, uh, he's like, Hey, send this stuff to me so that I can give it a platform and we can kind of decide if and when, you know, there's, um, there's problems. He also came out with a movie recently called America Lost. It has to do with, um, he, uh, goes around a couple of, uh, Rust Belt states and, um, talks to people about poverty, essentially. Hmm. Um, and it's mostly people of color. His the whole purpose was to sort of, uh, settle on that. And, um, I was going to watch it this weekend. And then he has another smaller documentary about the homeless, the poverty in, uh, San Francisco. Oh, okay. Because it's, Huge. Yeah, it's huge. It's a, it's absolutely absurd there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to. I'm on Chris's uh, tw Twitter right now, trying to find out. There was a couple of things, some other things that he had brought up that were um, crazy and problematic. But um, yeah, whatever the case, uh, we're going to see more and more. I think we'll see more and more independent journalists trying to search for truths that people don't want to hear. We have to. I mean, the whole thing, as far as journalism goes, um, the, the, the mechanism that allowed or led to the Internet basically killing journalism mm -hmm. is local news reporting. Yeah. So it's not the big news outlets because they get their stories from somebody on the ground in a local town who did the legwork and, you know, created the story or not create the story, but report on the story. And then the bigger uh, organizations, the Associated Press, stuff like that, can then spread that around. But without um, the budget to have local reporters 
doing the hard work to get the story, then then we don't have the information. And slowly but surely, as the local papers um, get shut down, there's nobody left to do quality reporting. Yeah. And now we are at the point where a news outlet, you know, ABC News or whoever, will literally quote Twitter as a source, which is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, and, and that's why I say, you know, at this point, journalism is dead. You know, there's a, there's a handful of people that are fighting the good fight and want to support them any way we can. But the reality is journalism, as we knew it at least, is no more. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate because the, there's a, a huge potential with the Internet to, uh, to, to get good news out there. But we've lost the uh, journalistic standards and integrity. You know, it's great that anybody can whip out their phone and become a news reporter and stream live on Facebook. It's yes. fucking amazing. But the quality has to be there. The quality has to be there. If you're going to take that as fact, if you're going to take it as news, it has to meet those requirements of uh, just journalistic standards, which, you know, is not happening. And, and nobody's arguing it or not a lot of people are arguing it and saying, hey, wait. Mm-hmm. This is not a credible source. They're like, oh, my God, did you see that video? And I heard this, and I'm going to quote Twitter, and I'm going to bounce around this echo chamber, and, and nobody's going to learn anything new. Yeah. So uh, Christopher Rufo, I found the tweet of his I was looking for. Um, he's been sort of unearthing some of the stuff that's been going on in these diversity trainings. And the, the one in particular that I'm going to talk about concerns the King County library system. Okay. So in Washington state, the largest library system in the largest County King County, mm-hmm. um, he had called them out a few months back over what seemed to be racially segregated training programs. He had got a hold of some photos some people had taken where I think I heard about this. Yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah. The, and I actually can show, I can pull up the actual pictures here. Um, divert die sessions, diversity, equity and inclusion sessions. Um, in one of the rooms at the, you know, the King County library system, it was people of color. And then in another room, it was people who are white. Yep. Yep. And, um, so he was like, you know, this is probably, this is, this is, this is a problem. Yeah. So he tweeted and was like, what the fuck? And, um, the King County library system had sent an email out to their staff addressing the issues. And it's a pretty long email, which I can read if you want, probably take me about five, 10 minutes. But the main thing of it is that, they recommend, um, they, they basically tell the staff to, instead of using the term racially segregated training program, they should use the phrase caucused, caucused listening sessions. <laughs> Again, reread Orwell. <laughs> so at the bottom of his tweet, he's like, Orwell would spit out his coffee. There you go. But uh, caucused listening sessions. And I think it actually mentions, I'm trying to find it as I talk here, but, um, that they had requested basically the, the, the company that they use, which is racial equity consultants, REC um, had recommended that they do what is essentially segregated um, sessions so that um, people of color would feel comfortable talking about their issues with the assumptions that they wouldn't feel comfortable talking about them with white people present. Yep. Um, which I found on one hand, I understand like that, that doesn't surprise me, you know, it, at all. But at the same time, 
like it needs to be this, 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 this may sound very radical to a lot of people, but I have to articulate this because this is what I think is actually happening. They're literally trying to justify segregation. Oh yeah. Yep. Even if the idea quote unquote is good, that's the whole point. And that's terrifying. And it's, uh, you know, I I can see it part of, part of my head is like, well, well, you know, they, they want people to feel safe. So segregation's okay. Like if I remember correctly, my, 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 my history is rusty, but if I remember correctly, part of, um, the reason for segregate, one of the many reasons for segregation in America was so that white people would feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so it was done out of a kindness to help white people feel safe. Yep. Um, and so th- this strikes me as the exact same thing. It's just reversed. Um, there is much reversal going yeah, on. Yeah. Right which now. isn't to say that maybe there, again, there isn't a point and that maybe we shouldn't even consider it. I don't think it's a terrible idea to consider, but that doesn't mean it should not be considered. Maybe there's an argument to be made. However, it, w- it would seem to me that um, that's a, a very bad thing to start doing because then all of a sudden you're justifying legitimate segregation. This actually, I don't have, I didn't grab the article for this, but um, this actually occurs or occurred, at least it might still occur in um New York City public schools. There was at least one school that I can think of that um, there was an article written about where they were teaching kids. This is like eight to 10 year olds or eight to 12 year olds. It's like a, 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 I think it's elementary school or maybe it was junior high, seventh and eighth grade or sixth and eighth to eighth grade. But they, throughout the day, they would segregate the kids and they would put all the white kids in one room and all the black kids in another. And they basically with all the white kids, they would break down and explain to them how they're racist and how their ideas are racist and how, you know, they, they need to be better humans and not be so racist towards all their, their, their black student for, you know, their uh, peers. And then the group of black students were told how you know great they were and how much they should treasure their, their African heritage or heritages. Cause there's um, a plurality of them because big place. Well, Africa's the most genetically diverse place on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were given cupcakes and then they were also told how, you know, how white people are racist against them. But they gave them cupcakes to kind of reaffirm their, uh, this, <laughs> I, this is why it stuck in my mind is because they gave them cupcakes and, and, um, and told them that they were basically told them that they, you know, they were good people and they shouldn't feel ashamed and all this nice, positive things, some of it. And some of it's a little odd to teach 10 year olds, but whatever. And then after these classes, they would put them back into the rooms together. And so you have... You have all these kids who may or maybe or may, 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 maybe they do, maybe they don't understand what's going on. But one group was told that the other group doesn't like them. And then the other group was told that they, even if they don't believe it or feel it, they don't like the, the black kids either. And so everyone knows that the whites hate the black kids. And then the white kids come in after an hour of getting shamed. And they see that not only should they hate the black kids because apparently they have to because they're white and it's inherent, but the black kids get cupcakes. And apparently part, part of the article was about how like upset people were over the whole thing, like all, all the black kids were very angry when the white kids showed up and then all the white kids felt guilty and bad and were sad because they didn't get cupcakes. <laughs> and it's like, apparently a couple of them like went home in tears and like told their mom that like they're a bad person and that's why they didn't get a cupcake. Like it was just this whole thing that like there was so much going on. Yeah. You know, I bring the cupcake thing up as like a funny joke, but like they actually did it apparently. And it, I think it, it, there's just this mess. Um, anyways. So yeah, caucus listening sessions. 
And then the email that went out to everyone, it was all supervisors and managers. They just talked about how to address the issues um, with a couple of Q&As and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it uh, was very interesting and it's terrifying to think that that that's happening um, in our state. Yeah, currently. I mean, a King County library system uh, is half a mile up the street, the Bothell Library. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it says, please be sure to refer to the sessions as caucused listening sessions rather than racially segregated and or trainings. Words matter in this case, so please be mindful. Words definitely matter. And see, that's, that's the other part of it is that um, of that entire sentence, the most Orwellian is the caucus listening sessions, right? Obviously, like they're literally repurposing words. Yeah. Um, the actual, I think, phrase that means that, that, that is the most terrifying to me is the words matter. That actually scares me more than them sh demonstrating that words matter. Yeah. It's the fact that they say it out loud and open. And, you know, I'm a, for me personally, because, you know, I'm a big stickler for words and how they're used and how sentences are structured and how things, how arguments are framed. And, you know, I said this multiple times before, but a big part of why I'm doing the podcast is to articulate my ideas vocally and poorly so that I could rearticulate them later better Yeah, because it's hard. Not only because thinking is hard, but because words matter. It's important. And, and so people talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion and how they're all really good things. And if you or I, let's say, were to push back on somebody about what those things actually mean, because I don't find any of them to be actually um, fundamentally I don't want to say good. I, I think that the the ideology that's under the substructure underneath that phrase, the, which is basically critical race theory, among other things, um, is not inherently good. And so those words are used, they're repurposed to mean things that people don't realize that they mean. Silence is violence, baby. Yeah. And then, but you, let's say we make a fuss and someone's like, you're being crazy. Like diversity is obviously a good thing or equity is great or inclusion is great or whatever. And it's like, words matter. They fucking matter. And then here we have an email from like a supervisor probably, well, I'm sure that they actually understand what it is that they're talking about, but they are the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the King County Library System. Um, so this is intentional on their part, I'm sure. But they literally admit it, words matter. And so when I saw that, I was like, yeah, exactly. There are problems. And all of these words are being changed and repurposed and people don't want to believe it because they have an idea of what these words mean. And they're like, no, 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 they don't mean something else. They mean what I think it means. And it's like, no, this is why words matter is because they're intentionally choosing words that they can multipurpose for their own purposes and change it will for that matter yep. to confuse the public. Because confusion is actually part of the part of the, the goal here. I've talked about this a lot before, but this is rooted in queer theory. Um, the whole point of queer theory is to disrupt and subvert and to um, dismantle and or to queer, as they like to say, things that are normal or normative or heteronormative. So the, the you know as a br as a brief example, being gay in and of itself is to be queer because you're not straight. Sure. Right. By definition, yeah. By definition, yeah. right? That, that's the simple example, but it extends everywhere, and it's very political. And um, 
And so repurposing these words creates confusion in the natural state of our heteronormative, you know, patriarchal Western civilization is that we want to not have confusion. We want people to understand things. So if you think you understand what a word means for me to queer it, I change the definition of the word. Yep. It's that simple. And that, um, that may seem kind of crazy. And that's the point. Like that's actually the point of, of the thing is that it good. It should. That's why it's being done is because no one in their right mind would say, Oh, these words don't mean what I think they mean because it would be crazy to do that. And that's what they're doing. Um, and I, I say they, for lack of a better term and or a person or peoples to go ahead and you can say it, call, those people, those people, call, you know, call, call out specifically, <laughs> mostly because it's, it, it's, it's rooted in theory. It isn't, this isn't one individual person's opinion. Then this person is, you know, um, looked at as like the fairy godmother of everything, um, or something like that. And, uh, it, the theory has been developed this way for a very long time. By, it's a defined tactic. Yeah, by, you know, hundreds of incredibly intelligent critical theorists who've spent their lives developing what is essentially critical theory, critical race theory, post-colonial theory, um, queer theory, basically every iteration of feminism, um, black queer theory, black studies, Native American studies, and indigenous studies, indigenous critical theory, black critical theory, like it just goes on and on and on and on. Um, all of those things, the theory is very similar, at least with what we're talking about here amongst all of them. The theories broadly have a lot of them have nothing to do with each other, but um, they tend to get mixed and matched depending. But yeah, it's... Um, It's interesting and a little scary to whenever I see these individuals speaking their truths, as it were, like just saying what they what they really mean, and then no one, no one says shit. <laughs> yeah, they just let it go, like yeah. that was normal or something. Yeah, and it's like no, I'm, I'm sorry, but it um, it's not normal, you know. And uh, anyways, yeah, so that's a little scary. Um, that that's a thing that's been going on. In the state of Washington. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, hey, so uh, before the podcast, we were talking earlier about uh, your thoughts on kind of the underdog status oh, yeah. of the uh, this election process. You want to expand on that? Yeah, so um, I've always been kind of an odd kid, and so I've always kind of felt like a bit of an underdog in all the things that I've undertaken in my life, um, just with struggles that I face personally and um, I've mentioned before on the podcast, but like my, you know, my dad was in prison when I was a kid and, um, you know, I had, uh, I was, you know, did really well in school, but I, you know, had attention issues and, it, um, aggression issues and, uh, nervous energy and things like that. And so, um, I've always been someone who's just kind of rooted for an underdog just naturally. I like stories like that. And, um, Rudy. yeah. And like, I, um, I like seeing, I like the hero stories where the individual starts out imperfect and actually quite bad at what they do. And then they somehow, they, they manage to throughout time overcome mm -hmm. the circumstances and succeed in spite of their failings. Um, it's one of the reasons I like Harry Potter is that he's kind of a average student. He's actually not that intelligent compared to his parents. He's dumb because his parents were apparently really smart. And, um, but he's got a unique set of characteristics that he cultivates over seven years and it allows him to win. 
is an underdog. You know, he's the, the deck whole deck is stacked against him in that book from day one. He's supposed to die. Right. And he finds that out in the last book and he still goes on and wins anyways. So in and around, and then shortly after the election results came in, um, and, you see this all the time. And so it wasn't surprising to me, but I noticed that, you know, a lot of people, uh, news reporters and things were talking about um, how Trump was losing and how they were, you know, um, condemning him for all of his, you know, uh, failings and things and how he's going to lose the White House and all the stuff that's true and predictable and um, probably correct because he's an ass. And I remember at one point before I kind of processed it, I was, I, I remember at one point being like, He's the underdog. I want him to win. Like, I just want to see what happens when he pulls this thing out. And then I was like, holy fuck, what? Because I don't want him to win. And I didn't vote for him. Like I mentioned last podcast, I voted for a third party. And, uh, but it was like that underdog mentality. Like it just clicked in my brain and I was just like, oh yeah, I totally want him to, you know, kick the shit out of those guys. They can shove it, you know? And then I was like, wait a minute. No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't want Biden to win either, but it was one of those things where for like just a brief second, I was like, oh, like this is the underdog. Like I hope he kicks their asses. And then I was like, wait a minute, who is this person? I don't know if I want him to kick their asses. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think that sentiment is a big part of what got Trump in office in the first place. Yeah. People just want to stick it to the man. They're sick of all the, the bullshit politics yeah. and they wanted to shake things up a bit. Which that that is that part of it is understandable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, not with Trump. I think that's a fucking bad move, and it seems like that is the case. <laughs> Over the last four years, that was a bad fucking move. Um, he's done a few good things, but not the guy we want running shit, as I've said before. Um, but there is definitely a uh, a sense that politics are fucked. People don't like it, so they want to stick it to the man. Yes. Um, which is tough because have we seen, as we've seen in the last four years, just because you're sticking it to the man doesn't mean good things happen. Um, and now, you know, you could say the man is back in office because yeah. the, the Democratic Party is the same old, same old. So we're going to back, back to what was in many senses. Um, so I think that, you know, that that's something that now we need to put our focus on Yeah, is to hold this new administration accountable. Um, and, and that's not to say, I mean, I, I, as much as I have misgivings and disagree with uh, with Biden Harris, I absolutely felt an enormous sense of relief when they basically mm-hmm. called it for him. It's already texted and, me. Yeah. Um, and it'll be nice to get back at least to something that is that. I mean, is is it feels more normal? It feels more predictable, even if it's the same old bullshit. We can we can come together and and hopefully work on getting the bullshit out of it. But this chaos of the last four years, it, it you, know, you get kind of numb to it after a while. But when it's all said and done, you're like, oh, holy cow! So I'm, I'm giving myself this week to really enjoy that. Yeah. And then uh, next week we'll start hammering <laughs> well, Biden. So uh, to that, um, the push has already begun by progressives, like the far left Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to use that for today, at least the term progressives, if it comes up again, to uh, to describe those who are much further left than the average Democrat. Right. Yeah, so okay. um, House and Senate members that I can think of who qualify under progressive or uh, AOC. Mm hmm. 
Um, I don't remember the names of the three other women that she's a part of, and they're known as the squad. The but squad, yeah. Th- those Skillian four. Omar. That's right. And, um, uh, Rashid, Rashid Talib, Talib, yeah, Rashid, yeah, Rashid Talib. Yep. That's right. And then there's one other, um, yeah. uh, Ayana Presley, I think. Okay, yeah, sounds right. Okay, um, so I'm going to use progressives to refer to some of those more uh, far left policies. Sure. Um, there's already a push. There's like a list of people that they want in office. That different groups do. Um, one of the calls is to create a new office within the government dedicated to climate change that reports directly to the president. On the face of it, I don't, I don't see a problem with that. So I see a couple of issues. One is the legal issue. I don't know much about like legal issues, but having direct access to the president seems to me to be a pretty powerful thing. Um, but I'm not familiar with most branches of the government don't deal directly with the president. They have to work their way up through the chain of command. And so I'm not sure legally if there's any issue with just creating a brand new branch of the government or a department in the government and then just having their boss be the president. My guess would be, and this is probably the specifics of reports too, so you would have this new organization for climate control. One person is going to be heading that up, and that person um, answers to the president. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they can pick up the phone and say, hey, Joe, I need you to do something for me. But if you reverse that and Joe says, okay, you need to work on this, then the person will work on that. Yeah. And I'm sure the actual logistics of it is, you know, my secretary calls his secretary and leave a voice or whatever yeah, yeah. and get it all coordinated. So it's not like a, a close, intimate connection, but a, a direct accountability. And um, the the president would be um, particularly aware of what's going on. Yeah. Like that's on their radar. Right, exactly. And I, I, I don't know this for sure, but I believe like um, there's a few departments that have direct access to the president. And I think that they're mostly military. Um, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I'd be curious to see how, if, if they get, if, if this comes to fruition, what that direct access to the president looks like compared to every other department that does not have direct access. Right. Like I could see there being a battle for like, well, we're also important. I think my, or again, my, my hypothesis would be uh, a benefit of that direct access would be to remove potential layers that would hinder any sort of work getting done. Uh, hypothetically, if yeah. they have to report to Mitch McConnell, not a lot's going to happen. So this uh, brings me to my second point. And so um, what strikes me as funny is the notion that the best way to combat climate change is to put it in the hands of the government. <laughs> that actually, I, that when I, when I read this, I was like, that actually seems like a really bad idea. It's like, first off, personally, like, I don't like large governments. I want the smallest government possible. So I'm naturally going to lean against whatever this is because I don't think there should be more departments in the government. I think there should be less. But moving that aside and saying that it's necessary, when has the government ever been more efficient than the private sector in anything? Well, I think right? that's that would be that to, to be most effective, they would actually use that concept and use tools that would incentivize the private sector. See, so with like carbon taxes yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. So the problem that I see with that is whenever that sort of thing is done, it creates a monopoly in that industry. This happened with railroads in particular back in the day. Um, Certain railroad companies won government bids to build railroads across the country, and they were given ta- they were given basically like credits or taxes, tax write-offs or something to that effect um, 
to do it. So it, it's in their best interest to do whatever the government wants in order to keep getting those things. And once they have them, they don't want to get rid of them, which means they're the only ones who get government contracts. So they get all of the contracts. Because as, as the government expands what they're doing, the, the, the one company is going to continue to do everything necessary to make sure that they're getting all the government contracts. And then it pushes out private business. I don't know necessarily if this something like this, and again, it's not like I'm up to speed on it. Sure. But Me neither. At, at first blush, I don't think the the main core of this would necessarily be government contracts, but rather um, setting restrictions on the private industry. So like if you're going to fucking burn coal mm-hmm. or some other fossil fuel and you got carbon taxes and things like that to de-incentivize. Yeah. And if you're working on different green energy products, then you get some tax breaks, sure. but still let the market itself compete. And, and that's going to be the tough thing is like, so you think about like a big, a big company that can afford to do whatever the government wants to do for the incentives, the tax breaks. And then they start doing everything necessary. Some small companies may not be able to actually do that because of their size, right? Or maybe they can't. I mean, if they're getting the same breaks, it's, at a, it's going to be at a different scale. Yeah. But- it, so maybe they're not, maybe they don't have the, uh, the size to actually handle what I, like, I can see running into problems. And so the, the, the thing you bring up about letting the market work, that's difficult once the government gets involved because people are just naturally going to do, if you get a government contract, they overpay. Well, again, not the contract, yeah. though, is what I'm saying. No government contracts. The government isn't paying anybody to make fucking solar panels. But they would I mean, do they probably that. are, but in general, policy-wise. They would do that for tax. If you got tax credits, that'd be the same thing. No, 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 because anybody can get that tax credit. If you make solar panels, then you're going to pay less on your taxes. Got it, okay. So Go it, sell some solar panels. But, okay, yeah. so instead of being like, okay, well, we're going to pick you because you do solar panels and we think you do them better than he does for the tax credits, everyone who manufactures the stuff. Yes, yes, so it's, exactly. Everybody getting, gets access to the same. Gets, okay, yeah. God, okay. Yeah, so I could see that functioning better. Um, again, I'm woefully ignorant on this kind of stuff. Um, like most government policy, it's convoluted and super, super confusing. Mm-hmm. But that was like something that I, I thought was um, interesting. It just seems to me that a more efficient way to handle this problem in particular is just to allow very wealthy people who care about it and who are in in it to just fix the problem. Like I would much rather give Bill Gates and Elon Musk a couple billion and tell them to go figure out climate change <laughs> than, than, to, than to give it to whomever Joe Biden chooses to run the Department of Climate Change, which I believe it's the theory, or from what I've heard, the rumors are that um, they're going to bring Jay Inslee, the governor of our of this state, the state that we're in to do climate change shit. And then if that comes to fruition, he would be the first one up. So I would much prefer that Bill Gates and Elon Musk get a bunch of money than Jay Inslee. Yeah. To to handle these problems. And that's the other thing too, is it's like, I, it isn't clear to me that there isn't a, the, the government needs to have a hand in this in as much as there's a department where taxpayer money goes to pay people to do God knows what to solve a problem that, I would just trust with way more intelligent people with way less restrictions like Bill Gates and Elon Musk to use them again, or any other billionaire who gives a shit about this. I mean, hell George Clooney's a big environmentalist. They don't have the restrictions that a government employee has. George Clooney can go wherever the fuck he wants, whenever he wants on at least one private jet and can go solve problems. 
as can the other two. But a government employee, they're stuck within a bureaucracy following rules and procedures and things. And it, it'll naturally be less efficient because of how it's structured. That's oh, a, for sure. That's yeah, one yeah. of the downsides to the government. Now, to be fair, it does still work over time, even though it's wildly inefficient. Like it's one of those weird wonders where I often wonder, I'm like, how does the government get anything done? And it's because it, it takes a while. Slowly, that's Slowly, but surely, but, and it's super inefficient, but I feel like if you were to make it more efficient, it would just create more problems for the government. Um, at least that, that's from what I understand, that, that seems to me to be the argument against like actually making the government efficient is that doing that creates too many other issues. And I'm not really sure what they are offhand, but yeah, I would yeah. say tackle those issues and let's increase the efficiency. Please. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. As far as climate change, I mean, really it's, it's a, it's a market problem at its very core. It is because we, as a human society, we need energy. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a must. And right now the cheapest way to do it is fossil fuels. Yep. And that's the financial incentive that keeps those things going. So if we can start tipping the incentives towards other forms of energy and let those brilliant minds um, do the research and development, build the factories, uh, create the new technologies yeah. um, strictly for their own benefit, give them their own incentive. You're going to become a rich dude. If you pursue this, then I think that's the, the type of incentive structure that would really actually tackle this problem. But it's not going to be um, just the government saying this is what you can or can't do. Yes, yeah. It's more this is what we're going to reward and this is what we're going to penalize. Do what you see fit. It's also not clear to me, too, that um, – and again, this is – a lot of this is ignorance. But from what I understand regarding, say, you know, coal production and fossil fuel production versus uh, – um, natural gas and uh, like wind and solar and stuff like that. It's not self-evident to me that coal production is so much worse as to no longer be necessary, like for the environment. Like a lot of what I hear is that if we ban coal producing in fossil fuels, then we could save the climate. And it's like, that's all it would take. It, it seems, it seems like it's more. Con there's more to it than that. And I also feel like we've, I, I assume we've come a long way in our ability to produce coal and fossil fuels and whatever's, um, in terms of the overall carbon emissions that they emit. Like I'm, I'm sure that it's better now than it was at the turn of the 20th century. Sure, clean right. coal. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, um, it would seem to me that like with most things, probably the best thing to do is to try and find a way to mesh both together. Because from what I understand, the problem with like solar energy and wind energy and the like is that um, some of it is about as not much more, but fairly close, similar in cost to like coal production. But the problem is that it can't be used all the time because there's only so many sunlight, sun, sun hours in a day, right? So you, Oh, yeah, that it, just it's, becomes it's, a, it's hard to store and storage, yeah. it, it, it use over time. And so you have these two issues of, well, I can produce coal whenever the hell I want. I can use it whenever I want, but it's bad for the environment more so than, it, definitely more so than, say, you know, wind and solar, which aren't have no emissions from what I gather at all. The problem, so that's, you want to go to those, but the problem is that they don't work all the time. And what happens is you you run out of them and you don't really have a way to store them. And then if you need some more, there's a high demand for it. So the market goes up. That's what happened roughly in California like nine months ago. Or maybe it was only six now. I have no concept of time anymore. <laughs> but when they had that huge power outage and 
they didn't plan for multiple contingencies. So I think what they're supposed to do is plan for like every day, they're supposed to plan for like one major problem. And so they always want to have on hand a reserve amount of energy for the state um, up above a certain threshold, like a factor of one, whatever that means. So you'd have 1.1 or you'd have one factor above whatever the normal day output is. Mm. Um, So that means one thing goes wrong and you have enough power to cover it all. But like three things went wrong and they didn't have enough power. And so now they're stuck spending triple the price, quadruple the price, 100, you know, an order of magnitude more in cost to get all this energy from neighboring states from like Oregon, Washington and, and whatnot, because they don't have a way to store or keep throughout the night, let's say, as an example, they're like they're solar. From what I understand, that's how that works. And so you could just push the two together, just use coal part of the time. Well, that's I mean, and that's kind of what what they're doing now. And I know that Biden has caught some flack for, you know, Trump was trying to call him out. Are you going to get rid of fracking and get rid of fracking? And he, get said rid of no. fracking? he said no. He said no. Yeah. He says in order to phase it out. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about. And, and, and you're absolutely correct. We have to phase it out. I mean, the, the reality is fossil fuels are the most portable and energy dense yeah. way we have to to uh, utilize energy. But. That's not to say that if we incentivize the uh, the new and upcoming companies and the Teslas of the world to work on battery technology, yeah, Fusion which, is the other big one. That, fu- that's a ways down the road, but yeah. yeah, if we get to Fusion, that's that is game over for energy. If we ever actually yeah. achieve a stable Fusion generator, um, that would that would be the. That'd be the industrial revolution, the agricultural revolution, and the internet revolution. All put together. Times 10. Yeah. Like that's, that would basically become free energy. And that would, I don't know, that might destroy the world just because of the political disruption that could potentially come from that. Yeah. I mean, I was um, thinking, you think about like phasing out fracking. I mean, that's a trillion dollar a year business, oil production, right? That's a trillion dollars a year, I think, in the U.S. Maybe it's globally, but it's like it's a lot of money. It's a big ship to turn, and it's like you're phasing this ship out, right? Or you're trying to get these companies to repurpose all of their workers to do something that they don't normally do, which is hard to do. And so, and you have a lot of very wealthy, wealthy people at the top who will become less wealthy. Like I think four out of the five largest oil companies in Russia are owned by Putin and his right-hand fella. I forget the guy's name. There's like a, there's like a guy and he's got a guy that owns them. And he, as part of the government, like he, I think he owns them personally and the government also owns them. Like share, they share ownership and he leads the whole thing, but it's Putin's guy. Sure. And then there's one other company that is outside of that that's owned privately. And I'm pretty sure the dude's been arrested and in prison multiple times. And, um, for basically nothing, because he's a competing company. And so getting rid of that, I can see being very tough. There's also the issue of, I think it's studies, economists have shown that, um, that like people, like a group of people need to, like a country needs to make, um, I think it's like $6,000 a year or more, something like that. Maybe it's 16. Um, not a lot of money for you for the U.S., but worldwide, it's a good amount of money compared to poverty's like a dollar a day or two dollars a day or something. Two thirty-five a day, I think, is poverty. So something like that. So like double, triple that. That. Um, 
before the country will start to or be able to care about the environment because they're too poor otherwise to sure. care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a lot of this kind of stuff, I don't see how this is going to be enacted in the incredibly poor countries in the world where their most prescient concern is how do I not die of starvation or genocide or Look, by wild animals, you know. It's economic, dude. I mean, as soon as it, yeah. um, electric power for you know, whatever purpose becomes cheaper um, in total than fossil fuels, then that'll be it. You know, it once batteries are cheap, once they can store a tremendous amount of, of energy uh, and that technology is growing, some really promising things on the horizon with carbon nanotubes and graphene and things like that, that there is a potential to get some freaking amazing batteries. So, you know, imagine, imagine your, your car doesn't need to be charged, but once every two weeks or once a month. Like that kind of power, that's going to, and you know, that, which means you can do cross country trips yeah. and you can store a month's worth of energy on these two batteries hanging on your wall down in the basement and, and all that stuff that sounds yeah. like sci-fi right now, but we're heading in that direction. When, once we tip that, and let's say it's all created, uh, with a, and we'll even say a, a nuclear fission, Yeah. but the nuclear technology going on right now before, you know, if we ever hit fusion, that's that's the holy grail. But even still with fission, there are new uh, reactor designs that are way safer. Um, they are they they have fail safe measures in place. Where currently, like Fukushima, the reason that was a problem is because it required cooling twenty four seven three six five, like pretty much all the other reactors in the world right now. Yeah. So if something goes wrong and that cooling gets disrupted, then you get a meltdown. Yeah. Uh, the newer technologies, A, they're much smaller on the order of you would have one of these reactors in every town. Mm -hmm. And if something goes wrong, if anything goes wrong, it shuts itself down with, with no requirement for power whatsoever. Basically, it has to have power to run. And if that power gets cut off, then everything shuts down safely. Yeah. Um, these are the types of things that are being worked on. Now, of course, nuclear power is, is regulated to the nth degree so sure, we're still be, yeah. many many years from this stuff actually coming to market but the technology is there it's very very promising yeah. um, most people are skittish about nuclear for good reason but uh, if, if you take a, a, a close look at it uh, the potential for for energy production and the the risk would, would be worth it sure so sure, let's, yeah. say, let's say we get a good handle on nuclear we've got batteries that last forever and they're super strong and they run all our stuff, um, at that point when it gets that kind of cheap, everybody will naturally, without having to yell about the environment, I just want a cheaper car, man. Yeah. I can't be, I can't be buying gasoline? Dude, you still buy gasoline? That shit's so expensive. Um, and once we get to that point, that's, that's when we get there. Um, I think the reality is it's the larger industries. It's the, it's the airline industry, trucking, yeah. you know, it's, it's not your, your Honda Accord that we're worried about killing the environment. It's, it's these larger things. Um, jet fuel is yeah. insanely, um, you know, polluting or, or whatever, adding to the greenhouse effect. I heard something, I probably got this number wrong, but I heard that one plane flight, like the eight, six hours it takes to go from Washington to New York, let's say, or something like that, is the equivalent in terms of carbon carbon emissions to a newborn baby up until their 18th birthday. 
Oh, wow. Something crazy like that. Okay. Where it's, like, it's like a very long period of time yeah. it would take the average human to just simply emit that many carbs through whatever, you know, farting and eating and <laughs> going about their day and, you know, whatever else that they would do that emits carbs. Um, break, use pen, break number two pencils and drive a car. And, <laughs> um, you can yeah. tell I know what it is to, what it means to have carbon emissions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, that may not be the actual number of years, but it was like a very long time. Yeah. I remember being like, Ooh, that's fucking crazy. So it's the big industries that really yeah. need to be addressed. Sure, yeah. Um, and I got to take a bio break. I'll be right back. Yeah, no worries. Think of something profound. We are at 90 minutes, by the way. Okay. So we could actually, if you wanted, we could wrap it up, or do you want to keep going? Uh, I'm going to keep going if you want. If you have more to say, or we can wrap it. I did have something else I wanted to touch on. So to bring it back to kind of the election topic and, and post-election and all that, um, something I noticed that, that is uh, not very encouraging, um, the response from the Democrats and kind of the, the na-na-na-na-na response to what appears to be their electoral win um, is potentially very dangerous. Um, you mentioned AOC earlier. She tweeted out, has anyone made a list of all the people that were, you know, worked for Trump or whatever, basically trying to blackball anybody that was associated with Trump? Yeah. That's a terrible idea because he did garner over 70 million votes. Uh, just under half of the country yeah. agrees with Trump. 
So if you're going to try and, and dox all these people and not allow them to have jobs, you're effectively saying the same thing to half the country versus, um, you know, bring it down a level or three. Yeah. Let's all let's all behave as Americans rather than red versus blue. And I'll commend Joe that he or at least the speechwriters um, are uh, keep repeating, you know, it's not red states and blue states. It's the United States. Yeah. And assuming that they actually act with those intentions, that really is what we need. Because just because the, the Democrats won doesn't mean that's it. You know, that Trump got into office for a reason. And it wasn't, yeah. you know, the, the problem was not Trump. Trump was a symptom of the problem. So this is, this is still the country that we live in. And these are our fellow countrymen. Yeah, and, I agree. I, I think, so first, I think, I think that President, President Trump got more votes than Obama did. Oh, is that how that, that turned out? <laughs> I know that Joe Biden did, but I'm pretty sure he got more votes than Obama did when Obama was reelected. I'm, again, I'm not positive on that. Um, I believe it. But it was it's at least close if it's not true. Yeah. So he's definitely gotten the most votes out of any loser. Um, second. He's the number one loser. Yeah. <laughs> second, I, I believe that a large number of people in the government are, um, they're like, uh, what's the term? Their lifers, they're, they're, they're not chosen by the president and the new president gets to choose someone new. Like they, they work there regardless of who's the president. Yeah, is. yeah, yeah. So she's already alienating a bunch of people who've just been career bureaucrats. Right. So that, that seems interesting. Um, the third thing, and probably the more important thing, is this is exactly what the Democrats did when they, Democrats did when they lost in 2016. This is the exact same thing. They lambasted and ridiculed and called out and made fun of and picked on all of the people who voted for Trump and claimed that they were morally reprehensible and yeah. terrible people. But half of the country voted for Trump. Yep. And so they have this, this is the same damn thing where it's this situation of how the fuck dare everyone vote for Trump? Your pieces of shit, your redneck hillbillies. I remember hearing that one a couple of times because it was assumed that I think Correctly, that the Midwest, a lot of the Midwest voted for Trump, but the assumption was that they're all, you know, redneck hillbillies who, you know, are white nationalist racists or whatever, things that aren't reprehensibles. Yeah, yeah, things that aren't true. And it's like, I remember saying this to some coworkers um, four years ago now. We were talking post, post election and, and whatnot. And I remember, I remember saying to them, uh, you know, at some point, the Democrats will take back the White House. There's always going to be a back and forth. It's unlikely that Republicans will continue to win until our democracy is demolished or the earth ends or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's a good thing. Those yeah. opposing forces, they, they're needed. In but yeah. but as, as soon as that occurs, because it'll probably happen soon, you think people are just going to forget that the entirety of the Democratic Party just called them and their family and everyone that they know in their whole entire town, you know, reprehensible pieces of shit and racist and sexist and xenophobic and homophobic, like all these all these epithets that probably by and large are actually not true. Yeah, like people aren't going to forget that shit. And it, it's like, oh, once we win, you come back to our side and we'll be friends. It's like, fuck you. That attitude is what got him in office in the first place. Exactly. And they're doing the same damn thing when they win. And it's like they don't learn. It's a, it's a huge lack of self-awareness. Yeah, and we, I think we talked a bit about that last, uh, uh, last week, in, in fact, about this lack of self-awareness. But yeah, it, it very much is. It's like, we were t we, I think we talked about it last week um, in regards to they expected, the Democrats expected to win 
um, to grow their lead in the House in particular, in terms of House representatives. <laughs> yeah. And it actually shrunk. They still have a yep. majority, but they have a smaller majority. Right. And then um, they expected that they actually, I think that they actually expected they would take the Senate. Um, and right now it looks like that won't be the case, um, I think. But it's like their perception of reality is just different and wrong. And this is another example of that. It's like, you, you don't, I don't care if you don't agree with somebody else. You don't alienate them for the purposes of saying, nah, 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 I win. Like that, you do that when you're in school, that's how you get punched in the face. <laughs> right? it's, it's elitist. It is. It, it, people it's, fucking hate it. I fucking hate it. I do too. Yeah. And I can't stand it. It's like, grow the, like, you guys aren't perfect. Grow the fuck up. Like, you're supposed to be the people who run our country. That's, that's your job. And here you are pretending, you know, acting like you're the 13 year old bully at school, yep. you know, and, um, it, it's frustrating to see. It's like, you don't need to, use, like, I referred earlier in the podcast to the, the term Trumpian and it's like, that's become a thing where it's like, this is Trumpian behavior where you're just being divisive in an asshole to be divisive in an asshole. Yeah. And there's like no, there's no other purpose. It's just. It's actually just detracting from any future gains you may have. It's very short-sighted. Very right? short-sighted, it, it's, yes. It's, um, it's a very impulsive. It's the opposite of what you would, have ex you would expect from a mature, rational adult. Yep. Um, and we've talked about, a lot about this over the, over the podcasts, this one in particular, last one, and then just all of our other podcasts. But there's this pattern that I see of, and I, I could be just drawing at straws here, but there's this pattern that I see with this lack of accountability, this lack of um, maturity, uh, growth, normalcy, um, all these kinds of things just seems to become more and more prevalent on the left. And um, it's the opposite of how it's supposed to be. And the reason I think I might be grasping at straws is, that, is because I read a lot about queer theory and the entire point of that is to disrupt normal behavior. And then I see all these things that are the opposite of normal behavior that normal, rational humans would do, like make fun of and laugh and call out again, four years later or for four years, really half of the country. And it's like, the only reason you're they're stupid, you know, you just don't have a firm grasp on reality or what you're, what you're out, how people view you or you're doing this on purpose. I think ultimately it's, it's not with a, I say, excessively malicious intent. I not, mean, with, not with everyone, at least. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think it's, you know, it's fair to say it's, it's been a very divisive situation. So, like I said, there's a, a sense of relief if you happen to be on the blue team this go around. And, and that's all understandable. But, um, you know, moving forward in a, in a successful way as a country uh, is going to require us to work together. And unfortunately, kind of going back to the podcast we did on the social dilemma, it's it's an uphill battle because it's easier and easier to hear only the things that you want to hear, only things that reaffirm what you already believe. Mm -hmm. And we need to come together and cross those boundaries and realize, maybe rediscover that even though someone has political differences, we have way more in common then we have differences. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's really what's being lost. And, you know, I, I think, you know, if you were to address one thing, whether it's, you know, climate change, 
the racial relations, all of the, uh, but first thing is the social media situation, the social dilemma. I think that is the very first thing because that is, that is driving all of everything else. It's how yeah. we communicate. It's how we try to make sense of the world. And if it is so divided and, and so siloed from each other where we don't have an agreed upon shared reality, mm-hmm. if both sides can say, yes, two plus two equals four, if you can't do that, then none of it's going to work. Right, exactly. And not only that, not only will it not work, but it leaves us incredibly vulnerable for a tyrannical leader to take over. Yes. Because if you can't agree on reality, then basically might makes right. Yeah. So So a couple of things. One will be a backtrack, but I'll I'll catch catch back up. So um, we talked last week a little bit about this, um, about the infighting amongst the Democrats because they expected to get a lot of gains and they didn't. And the main woman that they um, were upset about was uh, the chairwoman of the Democratic Com- uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, Sherry, uh, Sherry Bustos. And I think we talked a little bit about how they were angry at her because she, she said she could, she knew the path to get them a bunch of gains and then they lost. So they were understandably angry. It was her job. So, um, after the House and Senate gains failed to materialize, she has decided to step down and will not run, or she's not going to step down, but she's not going to run for re-election at the end of her next bid, in part due to the pressures um, that she faced as a result of this failure. Um, so that's interesting. Sounds um, like probably a good thing. Yeah. Somebody's not in touch. Uh I have a couple of articles about AOC. She's had a lot of things this week, mm-hmm. a lot of different things. Um, one is an article where she explains that she thinks that the reasons, uh, the reasons for Democratic losses uh, were because they did not spend enough, or in some cases she said that there were some who didn't spend any um, advertising money on Facebook. So we're talking about the social dilemma. And she's like, yeah. some of you didn't spend exactly $0 on Facebook marketing, which apparently is not true. I didn't look into the veracity of the claim that it was or wasn't true, but I had heard that it actually is not true. Mm. But that was her claim. And that, um, but if, what I thought was interesting about it is she's like, you know, we, we lost all this because you guys didn't market effectively. And that's a counter to both Republicans and Democrats who blame the Democratic losses due to progressive uh, policies, pushes, progressive issues, things that AOC herself would push forth, like uh, the Green New Deal, uh, Medicare for all, free college tuition, um, following uh, movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, things like that. Those are are like direct quotes um, or direct uh, paraphrasing from what people have said. And so I thought it was interesting that a bunch of people leveled some, you know, complaints about why the Democrats didn't win more seats. And they're like, well, you, you know, you're following these, these, these movements, um, that are polarizing for whatever reason, you know, you are pushing, abolish the police to fund the police. You're pushing the green new deal and it's too socialist. That's why you lost. And then like the, one of the progressives that's pushing all this is like, nah, it's cause you didn't market enough with Facebook. And there's like a complete disconnect. Like yeah. literally they have nothing to do with each other, which again, brings me back to what I said three minutes ago about interacting with reality yeah. and it's like disconnect. So in addition to that, AOC um, was quoted in an article. Um, she condemned the Lincoln Project, which near as I could tell is basically a former collection of Republicans who were against Trump. 
So it's just a, a project or a group for them to essentially sow discord amongst the people um, with regard to Trump and voting for him and then to get him voted out of office. Hmm. And um, AOC apparently tweeted, it's not too late for them, the uh, Lincoln Project, to do the right thing. Lincoln Project should take the take the loss, take the L, is what she said, because it's Twitter, so I think she abbreviated. There's space constraints on that, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> there is, isn't there? I'm pretty sure there is. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a yes. Yes, sir. 280 characters. Okay. So Lincoln Project should take the L and publicly pledge to give a lot of their fundraising to the people who actually make a big difference. Whew. Um, so she's actually condemning a group who she actually shares a common enemy and a common goal to remove that enemy from the office, which is another thing. It's infighting, basically. Even though these are Republicans, she's still like condemning a group that's doing what they can. Um, she also doesn't specify who the other people are who actually make a big difference. My assumption personally is... Uh, uh, Stacey Abrams from Georgia, but um, she's um, a woman who helps push Georgia blue. Dude, she's a fucking political powerhouse. Yeah, is she yeah. Is. so my yeah. assumption, just reading between lines, is she's referring to to at least her, if not other women, like black women in particular, like her, because Stacey News like tells a black woman. Um, <laughs> she is, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'd never heard it said, so I didn't want to assume, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, but, um, but in response, uh, Reed Galen, the co-founder of Lincoln Project, he had said that, you know, we're a pro-democracy, we are pro-democracy, the company, the project. I think that progressives would be surprised how much we agree upon. And That's beautiful. Yeah. And so it's funny. It's like she, here she is condemning for whatever reasons. I'm sure there's more to it than that. And he's like, look, I'm sure we have more in common. Like, let's bring it together. Now, I actually think that... Um, uh, Mr. Mr. Galen is naive in his assumption that... Um, a, they're all pro-democracy and that they have a lot in common. It's not clear to me that either of those statements are true, but um, I could understand why he would say that, make those connections, but I, I don't think that they're necessarily true. But um, it was, it, it just reminded me again of this infighting and calling people out. And I don't, it's, I don't get it. I, I just don't, it, it doesn't seem effective to me unless the purpose is to be just destructive, which is partly why I disagree with what Galen said. I think that he's being well, uh, too charitable and optimistic. No, I, I, I would agree with that. Even even if someone has some extreme, like they're socialist, you, you still have a tremendous amount in common. I mean, we want to be able to provide for our families. We want to live in a safe neighborhood, stuff like that. So I, I would agree with that. Um, oh, that last my other thought. Dang it. It's all right. I have some more, and then if you think of it, you can, you can butt in. Okay. So the things that I find inherent in uh, Mr. Galen's quotes is the is is the assumption that um, like the Lincoln project uh, progressives um, however you know you want to define them um, are also pro pro democracy that's the first thing I thought was interesting it's like it's not clear to me that they're necessarily pro democracy and the reason for that and we've talked a lot about this but is that a fundamental core tenet of critical race theory, and in particular queer theory, is the disruption, the dismantling, and the, the, the destroyment, whatever you want to say, the tearing down of the the, the, fa the very fabric that holds Western civilization up because it's considered to be the problem. It's Yeah. Um, I think statistically that's still a very small minority it is. of people. It is. They're uh, just really loud. It is, and they're very loud, but they're also, they also have a lot more power than I think people realize. And the where they lie politically is the progressive. 
Like that's yeah. where they're at. Yeah. And so it's not clear to me that um, it isn't like they're moderates or conservatives that are hiding themselves. Like these are straight up very liberal, progressive, far left progressives. That's where they fit. And that the, 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 even if it's a small group, they have power. And I find I, I don't find it correct to claim that someone who wants to destroy, let's say, or remove or tear down and rebuild our society is pro-democracy. Oh, no, by definition, they're not. <laughs> right. By their yeah. own definition, they would be because the democracy is corrupt and systemically racist and controlled by white people. And it's a patriarchy and all those things. So I can understand the logic from that point of view of we actually are the real democracy. But in in normal land, in like the real world, they want to tear down the democracy mm -hmm. and rebuild it. And so... Um, well, they don't want to rebuild a democracy. That's them, and they they would even state that they, sure. if they are openly socialist, then this you know this is the problem with democracy. This is yeah. the problem with capitalism. See, let's right. tear and it so, all down. We're so gonna go better. It's not clear to me that that that's that's correct. First off, and so that's why I say it's charitables. I, I feel like we've talked a bit about this over over the months or um, in the podcast, but people will engage like Mister Galen is doing with the assumption that they're playing the same game as the person that they're engaged with, that they know the rules and that there's no ambiguity with the rules. So like if you and I have a rational argument, it's safe for me to assume because I know you that you're pro-democracy because we've talked about it. Right. But if I don't know that and I just assume that you're also pro-democracy because of something that doesn't necessarily state that you're pro-democracy and you're playing a totally different game where democracy isn't even part of the rule set, that's a problem. Um, you know, let's say that I'm a soccer player and you and I are going to play a game. Our teams are going to play a game on a field. We agree to a game, but we don't specific, specify the game. It just assumed by me that it's soccer because that's what my team plays. But you don't like soccer. You think it's inherently bad for whatever reason. And you and your team play rugby. It's yeah, it's oppressive, let's say, to, to bring it into this. Um, and so you and your team play rugby. Because you like it better. It's less, it's, I don't, less oppressive. <laughs> <is> it? <laughs> um, but you guys play rugby. But you decide to not tell us, tell me and my team that you're playing rugby because you know that it'll give you an edge. And then we play a game. And I expect there to be fair play. And you and all your, all your buddies are just beating the shit out of my soccer team because in rugby you can tackle. And in, in soccer you cannot, right? And so... That's what I think is going on a lot of the time is there's two completely different games being played. And in this case, Mr. Galen, I think, might be susceptible to playing soccer when he's playing against a rugby team in that it's to make these assumptions, I think, is, is bold. You're just assuming in some part of me is like, well, you should assume people are decent and also have similar values. Like, And there's some truth to that. But if I've learned anything from all the stuff that I'm reading, it's that. I, how sometimes, sometimes how, like when I hear certain verbiage, when I hear people do certain things that don't really make sense, um, when I hear grown adults act like 12 year olds for the simple purpose of saying neener, neener, <laughs> it, it makes me question what their actual motivations are. And I don't just brush it aside and say, well, they're probably a reasonable person. It's okay. It's like, no, no, no. I got to delve into it because it's entirely plausible. And in fact, probably actually is possible that, that they're, 
they don't have good intentions, or at least their value structure is set in such a way that how they view the world is different. So they're playing a different game. And that's scary. I'm going to agree with both. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I absolutely agree that there is a, uh, a chunk of the population playing a completely different game. And that's not feasible. We have to have an agreed upon rule set. Um, it's just plain not going to work. But I also think that uh, he was, what was his name again from the Lincoln Project? Sorry, say that again. Uh, from the Lincoln Project, what was his name? Uh, Reed Galen. Reed Galen. Okay. Maybe it's Galen. It's G-A-L-E-N. Okay, that dude. Um, I will agree that, um, again, talking majorities, so not any one individual person, but people as a group, I would say the majority of the Democrats um, would fall into the camp of we have more in common than we don't. 100%. Um, I agree with that. And I think that this this minority of disruptive, progressive, socialists, whatever, um, you know, we can't ignore them, but we can't take them as serious as they would like us to. Like, okay, yeah, that's really fucking cute. Now you just go off to the side and we're actually going to run this country because most of the people are enjoying this democracy. So we're going to go with that. That's what's here right now. And if you don't yeah. like it, then maybe you should just wander off, but you're not going to fuck this one up. Um, I think that's a better, a more inclusive way to try and heal the country. My pushback would be, so first, I, I like that option. I think you should let people that have bad ideas talk and let them talk long enough to where everyone can hear their bad ideas, which is roughly what you're suggesting. Yeah. The pushback that I have and the problem is that we are past a point as a country where I don't know if that'll work anymore because enough people who believe this stuff, whether they fully, truly, you know, these are evangelical preachers, that's how much they believe it versus just, you know, ardent churchgoers yeah like as a difference whatever the case there are enough people in enough bureaucratic positions or positions of let's say small power right so they they run big parts of government so we're there it's pretty much every hr department in every single large company in the country is uh, is, is part of this those kinds of things they have the ability to affect change and so it, at this point it isn't so much that you just let them talk until people stop listening. It's like, well, if people stop listening, they still have the ability to affect change. So they're just going to put in the policies they want until people stop them. Right. And that would be the pushback is that to the degree that what I'm, what I've just said is actually true. It would seem to me to be that ignoring them is the war is, is a bad idea though. I understand why. And I think it's honestly usually the best thing to do. This is how I, this is how I handle Trump is I just don't listen to him. Cause I don't give a fuck. Cause he says dumb shit. And I just, you know, personally, I'd, I um, I assumed probably ignorantly that everyone else would be like, oh, he's an idiot. And no one would listen to him. And that was wrong, obviously, because yeah. half the country voted for him. But and they probably had their reasons. And I'm not condemning them for that. But um, I've kind of viewed it as a similar thing. But it's it isn't clear to me at the moment that we can afford, unfortunately, to do that. Maybe that's me, the best way to put it. OK, no, I, I like that. And let me let me clarify my position. Um I definitely agree that that hyper progressive shit that's going on, including um, making its way into our educational system, 
and all that. It is absolutely affecting change, and that, I think, should be combated fervently. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the, the important distinction is not to take them as the majority of the, say, the Democratic Party. Like, this is a very small group of people with some very bad ideas. Yeah. They need to be addressed. But if you happen to be a Republican, don't make the mistake of thinking anybody that's Democrat believes all that shit. Yes. Just like you don't want Democrats to think just because you voted Republican that you're a fucking racist. Yes. Because you're right. not. Right, exactly, exactly. So that's the, that's the level of, look, we've got more in common than we have uh, different. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to come together and say, okay, these are some things that we do. The actual white supremacists, let's get the fuck rid of them. Sure, these yeah. people that are, that are peddling this critical race theory, that's very divisive and racist in and of itself. So we got to take care of that. Yes. And yeah, then yeah. as a country, we can discuss these other issues. No, no, I'm on board with that. And I, I, I would say that add in a, a healthy dose of skepticism and I'm on board Beautiful. because th that's how I would look at it is like, I want people to, to talk and to speak and to say dumb shit so that everyone could say that was really dumb. Shut the fuck up. That's what I want. Or they could say it nicer or they could be way, way more mean if they felt it necessary, but that's what I want. But at the same time, if people have the power to actually affect changes and make policy changes and implement things into the country, it's like, I'm, I, I'm, I'm naturally skeptical anyways. And so like, I'm skeptical when I hear certain language and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not saying the person is like, it, to be clear in this case, I'm not suggesting that AOC is an anti-democratic anti-democracy, critical race, you know, theorist peddling individual, you know, nothing to that effect. I don't know her or her, you know, like, I don't know what she wants at all. Um, but I hear this kind of language and I'm like, wait a minute, I got to think about it. And that's where I, I always use the phrase, like, it's not clear to me because there's a little, there's enough muddiness in the water for me to be like, well, maybe, maybe that's her position. Maybe the people around her, that's their positions and they're kind of dictating or helping what she says. Maybe other people that aren't even related to her saying similar things and they do mean this stuff because you're right. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to tell who, who really is pushing this. Like, like I said, who are the evangelical, um, you know, missionaries, the, uh, yeah. the, the Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, the, the, the fervent uh, pastor, you know, mm -hmm. um, versus the once a year on Easter churchgoer versus <laughs> the, you know, or even the, the, the zealous churchgoer who takes notes every, every day. Like th that could be one of these individuals too, um, versus just the everyday layman who goes to church. Like that's, it's hard to tell. And it's a very small minority of the people who actually believe that stuff. And most just want to be not, this is an assault on niceness. <laughs> this is a slight tangent, but, but I'm really angry now. Just, this just pissed me off because it popped into my head and it made me angry. The, the ideology is predicated on basically infecting the niceness meter in people and then multiplying like it's a virus. <laughs> and in fact, I, I forget the uh, author who wrote this, um, not a very big author in critical theory, but, um, someone who wrote uh, either like a paper or a book, nonetheless about it. But uh, she actually described the ideology as cancer as like cancer, but like in a good way. 
It wasn't like this thing is cancerous and it's bad. It's like, you know, I want this virus to be cancerous to like infect the body and multiply uncontrollably like things like Ugh. it was a weird like parasitic d d description but it it's it it uh um what it's doing is it it takes people who are kind and nice and want to be nice and makes them feel guilty and in their niceness they want to follow something to be a good person and then the more nice somebody is temperamentally the more likely they are to believe it and adhere to it more even if they don't understand the underlying uh, ideology behind it which is a problem too because you just you hear all these things we talked before about a lot of the the um, sayings and stuff that come up they're like hard to combat it's like no one's gonna no one's gonna combat black lives matter and be like i don't want they don't matter like no no one says that because that's wrong so it's a great name for a movement. It's like, you <laughs> it's know, effectively a cult yes. is the thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's the indoctrination is very cult like the indoctrination and the ability to, uh, sequester communication. Like how many times have you seen, uh, somebody from the BLM group trying to actually talk to a cop or talk to somebody who's got a Trump shirt on or whatever. And just, ha and they come running up. No, 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 no. You don't talk to them. You don't talk to them. And, and by cutting off that communication, yeah. that, that is very fucking culty. What's, uh, I think his name's Daryl Daniels, Daryl Jones. He's um, a black musician, a blues oh, musician. Uh, he, he was on the Daryl, yeah. He was on the uh, Rogue Empire. I forget his last name. Yep, that guy. Um, so for those people who are unaware or listening, uh, Daryl, and I, again, pardon the name, um, the last name, but he... Uh, has made a habit of over the last like 10 or 15 years, he has converted something like a hundred and some odd, I think uh, 200, 200, uh, um, members of the KKK. He's, they've like renounced the KKK and he actually has a collection of all their hoods in his, in yep. his closet, yep. um, for all the people that he's converted away from the KKK. And he's short, short story. He started it all because he didn't understand. Like, he's like, well, if they just meet me, like they're not going to hate me because I'm black. Like, which is a very naive way to think about it, but he, it's also like the way that worked. He approached a bunch of people and it, it, it's been working. And he said, and I'm going to get this a little bit off because I don't have the article in front of me, but um, he had talked about how it was easier for him to do that than it was to deal with progressives. He had had a run in with like progressives and they like lambasted him. Yeah. I think, time. I think they lambasted him for actually talking to members of the KKK yep. to, I think, give them a platform. They like, freaked out though called him a whole bunch of names and he's like i'm I, he's doing more than basically every single person in this country mm -hmm. to help stop white supremacy by converting actual white supremacists from white supremacy to like a, a normal way of thinking or you know to a, a non-supremacist way of thinking that's his whole fucking thing in a nutshell really yeah and it's like find me a person who has convinced 200 people to no longer be racist or whatever. It's like, no, he's literally doing more yep. and he still gets shit because he talks to white people. Exactly. And it's like, are you fucking joking? Like we need more Daryl's in the world. Yeah, oh yeah. Quite frankly. Yep. And, um, that's the kind of grassroots stuff that actually needs to be put forth and people need to be taking advantage. People need to be doing, um, yeah, it's, uh, very interesting, interesting shit. And I, 
it scares me. We t- you asked last week a little bit about my what I'm kind of worried about with like the left with Joe Biden being president. A lot of the stuff we're talking about is this slow creep of language change. Yep. This uh, slow creep of newspeak. That's what that's what startles me is that yeah. it, it um, I, I'm genuinely concerned that we're just going to slowly, um, probably more rapidly, but uh, see um, these incremental changes and people are like, oh, that's not crazy. They don't mean that. And then move forward. And then all of a sudden people are still going to have a way to move. Yeah. No, believe what they say. They do mean it. And again, to reiterate, um, I, I can't overstate this enough. And this is why I'm skeptical. Is it um, the people who kind of, not everyone, but the, the ardent believers of the woke ideology, mostly the theorists, the academics who write and create this stuff, but they're, people below them who like fervently believe this to be true and understand the literature. Um, and to some degree, a lot of the people who don't, some of the more ardent supporters that don't really understand it. Um, they have a completely different worldview than the rest of people. That's the key to a lot of this, this stuff is that everything I'm saying is crazy because in a normal conversation or a normal world, everything that I say is crazy what I'm saying right now, like it, because mm-hmm. it, it goes against what we normally, how we would normally conduct ourselves. And that's the point. They have a different way of looking at the world. And so this is all their normal. And the whole point is to not be normal in our normal. They also reject it because of its inherent, um, everything. It's inherent whiteness. <laughs> I mean, that's funny, but I mean that seriously. Yeah. That's, that's one of the problems with Western, with Western ways of knowing is that they're white. They're saturated with whiteness, which is in part how systemic racism comes about. Um, roughly speaking, there's more to it than that, but that's <laughs> roughly correct. I mean, it, it's ridiculousness, and we need to get the fuck rid of it. Yeah. Um, I have but a, it's not everybody. No, it's not. It's not, not even a fucking, it's not that many people. They're just really loud. And powerful. And we need to come together. We need to talk to each other, talk to your neighbors. Um we need to get news from multiple sources. So, so get out of your echo chambers. I'm going to say anything is just get out of your echo chamber. Just take a visit. Go, go listen to some Fox news or go listen to some MSNBC just to see what they're saying. Keep an open mind. Yeah. You're probably going to agree with a little bit of it, even if the tone is distasteful because it pretty much is for all of them. Um, but it's important to understand what reality that the other person is constructing for themselves and try to meet them somewhere in the middle because we are all in this together. No, very true. And that's just a good advice for anyone you have a conversation with is people actually do look at the world differently because we're different humans. Yeah. We have, I like to think of it as like, it, it's it's referred to as like objectivity, right? Like an objective way to view the world. And then you could think of it as like a, a meta subjectivity, right? You take all of the different subjective views of the world and then you extrapolate commonalities hmm. and then you have roughly speaking, okay, you have yeah. the objective universe. Um, that, that's near as I can tell. That's one of many ways to explain objectivity is that it's just what, what do we all most like? Cause there are some people who don't believe that the earth is round, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile the subjective viewpoint of flat earth, cons- the flat earth theory versus the, objective viewpoint of, or subjective, let's say, quote unquote, view of the earth being round. 
you can't, you have to figure out which one's right. And so a lot of people have postulated that the earth is not flat and then they've figured out ways to test that. Yep. And therefore it wins until there's an idea that shows that it's no longer flat or no longer, sorry, no longer <laughs> round and that's actually flat. Like that's the whole point. And so you want to figure that out in any conversation, assuming that someone thinks the way that you do is a surefire way to actually end a conversation badly mm -hmm. or start a conversation badly because they may just not. And really what that comes down to is it comes down to asking questions. That's it. It's just, you got to yeah. ask a lot of questions and really try and figure out what it is somebody believes. Um, and then I like your idea of, uh, listening to a bunch of different things. I always try and read a bunch of different books and I, I'm going to give you an example. I'll give you six examples cause I have six or seven <coughs> books on the way. So, um, tomorrow I should get the book on tyranny by Timothy Snyder. You know, I've actually talked about this. Oh yeah. No, um, I've got the audio book. It's great. Yeah. And so, um, that was referred to me by both yourself and by a professor at the UW, Daniel Chirot. Um, after I read one of his books and then emailed him about it, he said, read on tyranny. So that's coming with the, a book called Intersectionality Key Concepts by uh, Patricia Hill Collins, who is okay. um, a legend in the, in the intersectional and the feminist, intersectional feminist universe. She's a, she's a big, big player. I think I've heard her name thrown around. And then I have Critical Race Theory, the key writings that formed the movement by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's the creator of uh, um, interse the, the phrase intersectionality. She wrote the page in 1991, I think, called Mapping the Margins that talked about it. Um, I have How Democracies Die. That's coming soon. Mm. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it's about, but it was recommended. Probably in the title there. Yeah. Um, something about democracy dying. I love it. <laughs> and then the next two books I have coming are, Is Everyone Really Equal? Um, and an Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education, which is by a, a woman named Oslam Sensoy and then Robin DiAngelo. It was one of the first books Robin DiAngelo did. Oh, okay. So I'm going to check that out. And then the book I've been waiting for um, for a while, it's called Being Good, Being White, Being Good. White complicity, more white moral responsibility, and social justice pedagogy, which is uh, uh, pedagogy is basically like how things are taught um, by Barbara Applebaum, who's also a big player. She's more, of, she's much, much, much more radical than most, though, from what I understand. But she's mm. a big player in uh, queer theory and feminism, the like. She's a, a radical feminist. Okay. Um, so I'm excited to learn about being white and being good. <laughs> Um, I'll let you take the hit on those, man. I can maybe stomach one or two of them. No, I'm doing them all. It's uh, that's tough stuff. I haven't, it's I, good work you're doing, man. I'm, I'm trying. Like, I took a break of reading this sort of literature, um, the critical theory style literature, uh, for like a month, and just read a bunch of other books. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I need to keep reading it so I don't lose it. Sure. You know, and it's like there, there's so many books that I've been wanting to read that are on the list, and I'm probably gonna have a problem with all of them. You know, but th that's the whole point of this is like, if I don't understand what it is of the other, other people are trying to say, how can I hope to talk to them? Yeah. And like, you, you want to be able to articulate their point better than they can. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and a lot of what's being said, like in particular with Barb Applebaum, white complicity, white moral responsibility and social justice pedagogy, this is directly related to what we're dealing with. White complicity and white moral responsibility are things that we they get tossed around all the time on the news, right? Um, silence is violence is white complicity. Like white silence is violence. That's literally what white complicity means, 
right? The white moral responsibility, I can, can, I can guess at what that means, but I'm, I'm sure it's something that I should morally do as a white person that I'm probably not. Um, and then social justice pedagogy is how do we teach kids basically and college students how to be activists. That's I'm paraphrasing, mm. but that's going to be basically what that means. Um, because social justice is in and of itself political. That's the whole point. Um, I'll end on this. This just reminded me of something, the political part. It's been said quite a few times by different um, members of the Black Lives Matter movement, like the different people's in charge of different places, that it's not a political movement. Yeah, I, I, I have that remark that as well. But um, they've said it a lot, and there's really been no evidence thus up to a point that it's inherently political. I'm sure there's some things that uh, some people have said, but... Recently, I guess, the London, UK um, chapter of the Black Lives Matter movement made an expressed statement that not only is their movement political, but that they actually want to be included as like a party in, in like the voting process or something. Like they were basically, they came out and they're like, we're uber political, deal with it. And, um, and it just, that reminded me of that. It made me chuckle because <laughs> it's like they're political. They just, they're waiting for the right moment, I think, to unleash the politics. As it were. That makes sense. I'm going to counter that with something that I think would be uh, a value rather than uh, you know, keeping an eye on the critical race theory and how, uh, how crazy that could get. Um, I think the correct direction for talking about race in America, um, a great example of that is uncomfort- uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Um, and that is uh, hosted by... Uh, and this will show how little I pay attention to sports. Uh, his football player, last name's Ocho, like Emmanuel Ocho, I think. Okay. I'm sure the entire audience is laughing at me now, but that guy. I don't know who that is either, yeah. so you're fine. Um, but he brings on white folks. He's had like Matthew McConaughey and other celebrities. He'll bring on an entire family. He's brought on like a mixed family, white parents, black kids, things like that, um, to just openly talk about race stuff and not, a, not to call people um, – racists or way on the patriarchy or any of that. It's like, I'm a black man. You're a white dude. Let's talk about this. And I think that's exactly the conversation that we as Americans need to have. Sure. Because we do have race problems in America. Uh, and the best way to get beyond those is just plain exposure. Just, just listen to black and white people interact. Do it yourself if you can. Make some black friends or make some white friends if you're black and you don't hang out with white people. Yeah. Oh, that's probably not the case. <laughs> you can't avoid the white people. Um, We're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just to, just, to have, just to have those uncomfortable conversations right, and, right. and be around each other, I think that's, that's what's going to heal that, that portion of our, our so, problem. So you're saying that we should have... Um, desegregated diversity training sessions instead of segregated yeah or yeah, caucused that's the learning le- yeah. learning yeah yeah no caucus jesus god all right this has been episode 12 post election question mark <laughs> we made it to a cool dozen <laughs> we have made it to a dozen podcasts which is absolutely absurd um Yes, yeah, so this is this is the end of episode twelve of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. That's all I have. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody, take need, care. Have a that. great uh, morning, afternoon, or evening. 
Agreed. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Bye.